This is Transmission Interrupted, the podcast series from NEETEC, the National Emerging Special Pathogens Training and Education Center. Welcome to Transmission Interrupted from NEETEC. Hello, and welcome to Transmission Interrupted. My name is Lauren Sauer, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Nebraska Medical Center and the director of the NITEC Special Pathogens Research Network. For those of you not yet familiar with NITEC, our mission is to set the gold standard for special pathogen preparedness and response across the health systems in the United States with the goals of driving best practices, closing knowledge gaps, and developing innovative resources. NITEC works alongside and in cooperation with the CDC and is funded by ASPER, the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response. On today's episode, we have two very special guests, Jade Flynn from Johns Hopkins Medicine and Brooke Norin from the University of Minnesota Medical Center and two of our all-star SPRN co-leads. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about the critical role of nursing in clinical research. Welcome to the show, guys. I'm so happy to have you here. Jade, Brooke, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe how you got involved in clinical research? Sure. My name is Jade Flynn. I am the nurse educator of the biocontainment unit at Johns Hopkins Hospital. I joined the biocontainment unit as their nurse educator in 2017, and I was introduced to clinical research in 2020 during the pandemic with the adaptive COVID treatment trial. My background is in neurocritical care, and so I really bring that bedside nursing aspect to what we were implementing with ACT. Thanks so much for joining us, Jade. Brooke? Yeah, thanks for having me. My name is Brooke Noren. I'm a nurse and the clinical research program manager at the University of Minnesota Medical Center. And I do research in um, pulmonary allergy, critical care, and special pathogens. I have been doing clinical research for the past 19 years, so it's hard to remember how I actually first got involved, but I love it. And I've been doing research with special pathogens since 2016. Well, thank you both so much for joining us. It's great to have you here. Jade, you mentioned the adaptive COVID-19 treatment trial that SPRN obviously participated in with NIH. And it's just crazy to think the amount of research that we saw happen during the pandemic. So much clinical research, so much activity bringing in teams that were new to containment care, some teams that were new to research, some teams that were new to the biocontainment unit environment, all teams that were new to COVID-19. I don't even think it was called COVID yet when we started all of this. Maybe can you both tell us a little bit about your experience of conducting clinical research in the early days of COVID? Yeah, Lauren, thank you. Just for a little background, traditionally, when we conduct a clinical research study, we do it in a research unit, in a clinic, or sometimes in a hospital. And when we do that, the research coordinator for this study is the one that consents the participant and does most of the study procedures and with the assistance of the clinical care team. And the things we have the clinical care team do are things that they would do in their normal day-to-day interactions with the patient. But because there was a shortage of PPE early in the pandemic, we had to figure out new ways to do this work so that the research staff wasn't using up that precious PPE. So at our center, we figured out a way to do the research from outside of the room and to really partner with that 
clinical team to do some of the procedures that we normally would have done. That's amazing, Brooke. It's so interesting to hear some of these early innovations just getting highlighted. Jade, what was your experience like? Sure, absolutely. So I came from the bedside. So I I came straight from taking care of COVID-19 patients. And then what we were doing was writing the rest of the hospital to do the same. So being part of the ACT research team, I was bringing that perspective of this is what's happening right now. This is how people are feeling. And this is how we need to feed that information about research to them. Because I think we all had a smaller capacity to absorb all this information because things were evolving every day. So I think my view was really at that 800 foot view, what's happening from down on the ground to where does this information need to go in the middle? So I think being that middleman was really what I was trying to do. It's so cool that you both have clinical experience and research experience. And I'm sure that is so unbelievably valuable when carrying out these studies. How is your experience conducting clinical research different than providing clinical care? So I can speak for the clinical research that we were doing with ACT. And I think the difference was that we were delivering this COVID-19 care in multiple sites, in multiple locations, and readying the staff that typically work there or redeployed staff to care for them safely. So it was a lot of, oh, I know you because you have this t-shirt on and I know that you're associated with research. Oh, I know you because you sent me this email. So just creating those relationships and connections is really important. And just the, the diffuse nature of having the study be not just in one unit, but in multiple locations. Jade, you mentioned multiple locations across the hospital and multiple sites. The early days of COVID, we were standing up units so quickly you know, new places to care for COVID patients where we had not been caring for patients at all prior to the pandemic starting. What was it like for you both to get research spun up as hospitals were expanding COVID operations basically from zero? What was it like to bring these protocols to clinical care teams? You know, we have a good example of this. We got the ACT trial up and running in record time from the time we got our first protocol to the time where we were activated to enroll a patient was a few weeks, which usually takes several months. So we were very excited and ready to implement our protocol. And we had buy-in from the hospital systems and the researchers and the laboratories. And we brought ourselves to this unit, this brand new COVID cohort hospital that we had here in the Twin Cities. And we rushed in thinking, here we are, we have something that's going to help you. And the nurse managers there were like, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> like, we're, what are you talking about? We're not ready for this. We can't do this. We're still trying to orient staff and get to know each other and trying to figure out how to how to interact with patients in this virus. And that was shocking to me. I didn't know that they would be prepared to do that, but there was a nurse there who had done clinical research before. And she said, nope, we can do this. I've done this before. We need you. Come on in. I will help the others become more comfortable with this. So even though we thought we were talking to the right people, we weren't. We hadn't talked to all of the right people But in the end, it did work out. We were able to open up the protocol at that site even that same week. I think this is one of the critical objectives of the SPRN is to get that integrated network early, to get buy-in for clinical research. 
And actually, in the show's notes, we'll put the latest paper on the SPRN experience with ACT during the early days of the pandemic. And to Brooke, your point, just how fast we spun all these protocols up. So doing that legwork to get the buy-in from the clinical care teams must have been just whirlwind compared to the normal timeline. Absolutely. Jade, did you have the same experience at Hopkins? Yeah, I think the the experience I had was trying to be two things at one time, still trying to be a bedside clinician while also trying to be that ambassador for this clinical research protocols and bringing that information of this is what a research protocol is. These are the faces that are part of these research protocols. And then just having a research team actually have some sort of visible presence because I, I think on these COVID-19 units, they were so incredibly isolating, not just for the patients, but also for the staff. So having the research teams actually come to the bedside and being able to consent or just to have a phone call at the beginning of the shift and say, hey, I see that you're taking care of my patient today. They're enrolled in this study. Let me talk to you about it. And just having that open line of communication would really foster a trusting relationship between clinical teams and research. It sounds like communication is so hugely important. Can you talk a little bit about how you get research integrated into these hospital systems or even the unit-specific operations? Like, what does the communication look like around how you make sure that everyone has awareness on the potential impacts of the study and the visibility on the study requirements and sometimes even recruiting and identifying patients? I think the difference is knowing what is the role of the research nurse versus what is the role of the clinical team. And so knowing that this research protocol is going to be implemented with this patient population, is it that the clinical team is screening them and looking for whether or not they're a potential candidate? Or is it that that legwork is done and by the time that the research team approaches the clinical team and the potential participant, has this already been vetted? So knowing that these are some of the operations, not just clinical operations-based, but research operation-based, who needs to know that information in that context? And does that context of information and institutional knowledge sit at the management level and does it trickle down to the bedside nurses? Because I think, what is it that people need to know when a research protocol is implemented is probably the best question to answer when you're trying to operationalize it. So once you get a study stood up on the unit, and you're working with nursing staff and you're working with the unit administration, if a patient's enrolled in a clinical trial, how do you safely administer a study drug that might be blinded and chart for the patient without knowing what drug you're giving or whether you're giving a drug or placebo? It must be really challenging in that chaotic environment for the clinical care teams. Yes. So education is definitely the key, education and communication with that clinical care team. So for many of the studies, The gold standard is a randomized placebo-controlled trial, which means that half the people will get the real study drug and half the people will get a placebo that looks exactly like it. For a bedside nurse, we have to educate them on all the side effects of the actual drug, and they should assume that they're giving the actual drug with every patient. But what we do need to know is who's monitoring the patient, who's monitoring their labs, who is checking to see if they can receive their full dose, if they need a reduced dose, if they can even dose the next day. If there's not clear communication about who's making those decisions, then it'd be chaos. So at the beginning of a study on each part of ACT, 
we would go into the unit. We'd have in-services for every shift. So as many people as possible got an education on what the study was that we were bringing to the team. And along with that, there was printed materials for them to reference. And most importantly, research staff's phone numbers so that they could call anytime they had a question. But like Jade said, if you know that someone's new or if there's a question about a patient, the daily communication with the nurse is really important. So we know that they know what they're doing and that they know that we are there to support them. To piggyback off of what Brooke was saying, I think from the perspective of the bedside clinician, now they have multiple eyes on this patient looking at labs, looking at vital signs. And so having multiple eyes on the same patient means that they're getting more more monitoring in the sense if the clinical team isn't picking up, maybe the research team is picking up and vice versa. So having multiple eyes on that. And then also the bedside team is there 24-7. So they are the eyes and ears of the research team if something were to need to be communicated up the chain. And so just having the research team be very clear of who to call in the event of. And I think having those clear expectations and, and clear notes of this is who to call when this happens, or this is what I want you to look out for when you're administering this drug. And I think that at least has that, you're fostering this trust between the research team and the, the bedside team because you're both working for the same goal to, to treat these patients. Yeah, that's such a great point. We think about the research team generally as a different team or is separate from the clinical care team, but everyone's trying to do right by the patient and having extra eyes, especially eyes that know what they're looking for, like an experienced clinical research nurse is huge. I mean, just think about how often we have encounters with patients and how important those encounters are to make sure that we're charting that information and make sure that information is being relayed. So I completely appreciate appreciate the value of having both of those teams having eyes on the patient. So what happens with the patient encounter after the study drug or a placebo is administered? What is the research team's responsibility versus the clinical team? I can imagine that you both have tons of clinical experience as well as research experience. So it probably means you're sometimes wearing two hats. But what's it like for the clinical team when their patient is on a research protocol? Yeah, so for the clinical team, I think we had an order set that was clear. This is the drug that you're administering and at this frequency, and these are the labs, and this is when they want to be drawn. So I think the perspective of the clinical team was to make sure that we were doing right by the research team and we're messing up their the data that they were collecting or making sure that they had the information that they needed. And I think what we conveyed was that this research protocol, particularly ACT, was one of the ones that could really show an effective therapeutic for COVID-19 when we had none. So making sure that we all were aiming for the same goal, I think that was our perspective. And to piggyback on what Jade said, from the research team's perspective, we just always had to remember that safety of the patient was the most important thing. And if there was ever a conflict between what the clinical team wanted to do and what the research team wanted to do, those two teams would need to communicate. But in the end, like that patient safety was the most important thing. And we were that clinical care trumps research any day. That makes total sense. So just to follow on for that, when a monitoring is required of a patient, 
whose responsibility is it to watch for side effects, to draw the safety labs and to monitor for those adverse events or maybe schedule changes to the drug administration? Great question. Most of the time it depends on the protocol, but usually the research team, like Jade said, there would be an order set for the clinical care team to know when to do different monitoring, like vital signs or safety lab draws. But most of the time for dosing, the research team would be responsible for watching the labs. But it's a two-way street. So the clinical care team can say, I don't think this patient is tolerating this dose. And they could reach out to us and let us know. And there would be a conversation there. So it really is, it depends on the protocol, but both teams are involved. That makes total sense. We've talked a lot about those teams uh, and their overall responsibility for the patient and the study protocol. Who are some of the other critical roles in the clinical research team? So when I came on to the clinical research side, I think I learned the most from our study coordinators. These were the, the people that were intimately involved in the startup and the, the data entry, enrolling patients, getting all the paperwork in order, looking at the lab. So I learned the most from them. And what they learned from me is how are we interacting with the clinical bedside team? How do I find out who's assigned to these participants? So I think we gelled really well and we learned really well from one another. A couple of other entities that made a huge difference in our work were the research and hospital pharmacists. They played a huge role in the ACT trial. The dosing was prepared daily and per individual participant. And sometimes we were at multiple sites, so we even had to call the pharmacy every day to ask them to make up the medication, and then it was couriered over to the respective pharmacies in some cases. And also the laboratory staff. Oh my goodness. At the beginning of the pandemic, no one knew how to handle specimens, especially research specimens for COVID-19. So many kudos to the laboratory staff for putting themselves out there and they did process many research samples that we're going to learn from for years to come. Yeah, absolutely. It really shows that it's a complete team effort to get this research conducted. And I think the team members across all of our SPRN sites have just been so invaluable in teaching us these really highly skilled and really important elements that go into clinical research. So, We've talked a lot about ACT and COVID research, but we all also have day jobs on special pathogens biocontainment units. What's it like to do research in that containment care environment? Is it easier to teach researchers to do research on a BCU, or is it easier to teach your existing team members to support research on the units? So I've struggled with this question a couple of times. With COVID, I think we needed everybody to be part of implementing research and, and taking care of these types of patients. If we were really to talk about these special pathogens and these high-consequence pathogens that would be in a biocontainment unit setting, we really are balancing risk with exposure and what is their role on the biocontainment unit. And with me, if I can train you and you can be on the unit safely, I want you there because that's more help for us. And so I think one of the things we need to balance is if we are bringing these research teams on, what is their role going to be on the unit? Is it going to be purely research? Or do we want them to do more and be fully integrated into the team? But I think that's a catch-22 because then 
if I were to report to the biocontainment unit, am I reporting as a bedside nurse and taking care of the patient? Or am I reporting as the research nurse and conducting research and data entry and things like that? So I think being part of this very interesting network, we're able to talk through these situations where what is the best use of these personnel and how can we keep them safe? I agree with Jade. I think that both the bedside nurse and the research nurse are full-time positions. I think it'd be hard to have someone doing both of those jobs and doing them with excellence. I think that it's great to train a research nurse to be able to enter the biocontainment unit when needed. But in my opinion, I think that they're two very separate roles. And to do the best job, I think they just have to work in combination. Yeah, absolutely. That makes total sense. Although I will say in the words of Jade, everyone can clean. So (laughs) you got to teach them the cleaning protocols, right? Whether you're a research (laughs) nurse or a clinical nurse, everyone learns the cleaning protocols. (laughs) (laughs) I I think that this conversation just really highlights the value of having a well-integrated team and, and the importance of setting up these roles, especially in containment care early. So before the patient is coming through your emergency department or coming on an airplane to your biocontainment unit and making sure the team members know each other, trust each other, understand the PPE protocols whenever possible, understand the working environment on the biocontainment units. And and I think, you know, you've both done incredible jobs of building that, that collaboration, that communication. And as you both know, the ACT treatment trial that you've both mentioned I think because of some of that communication collaboration led to some of the first FDA approvals for COVID therapeutics like baricitinib and remdesivir. What was the best part looking back on all of this at standing up this critical research? I think the uh, best part of the ACT trial was we were part of something that was bigger than just one site. We had so many academic centers and so many other sites that we were talking with on a daily basis, and we were all trying to aim for the same goal, which was trying to find treatments for these patients that were coming into this hospital very sick. So I think being part of something bigger was probably the best part of entering clinical research. Yeah, absolutely. Lauren, one of the things that really stands out to me is it was such an honor to talk with the patients and the patient's loved ones during the early stages of the pandemic when There was so much fear. No one knew what was happening or how to treat it. And I feel like because we had this trial and we were able to reach out to these families that we gave them some hope in a time when everyone was feeling helpless. Yeah, that's such a great point, Brooke. I mean, I think we've talked a lot about the clinical and the research teams in this environment, but the most important part of the team is the patient or the participant and their family members who, you know, if it weren't for them, we would have no clinical research. We would have not been able to learn and build new tools for our toolkit in fighting COVID-19 and the special pathogens that we see on our biocontainment units. It's so important that we continue to build and develop that trusted relationship between patients, study participants, and our research teams. The entire environment of clinical research is built on that trust. How do you guys think we continue to build this trust in the community, not just to participate in the research trials, but also to use the resulting therapeutics and the vaccines to know that these are built with the foundation of science 
and that they are safe and effective and that it is people just like new patients that led to these development of these drugs. So I think one of the things that I am reminded of is just the tenets of good clinical practice and clinical research. And I think respecting participants' autonomy and just patients in general, they are in charge of how we are treating them and how they want to move forward. And then emphasizing that you are doing this and you are participating in this, the the information and the, the data that we're collecting from you could actually benefit others. So I think emphasizing those types of things that we are doing this for the good of others and that we are doing this with good intentions at heart. Because I think fostering those frank and honest conversations between research teams and potential participants is so important to do at the get-go. In the end, it's their decision whether or not they enroll or not, but to always have in the back of the mind that the relationship that you're building is one that we're building trust in the research that we're conducting. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you both so much for joining us today to discuss the role of nursing and research. It's been incredible to watch your teams support the ACT COVID trial, to watch your teams and collaborate with your teams in building the Special Pathogens Research Network. And I want to personally thank you both for all of your leadership within SPRN. It's been just a fantastic experience working with you, and I look forward to really expanding the role of nursing in research across the SPRN. Thanks for having us. Thank you. It's our pleasure. For those of you listening at home, thank you for tuning into this episode on nursing in research. We hope you'll join us for future episodes on a wide variety of topics from healthcare worker safety to personal protective equipment and even more about infectious diseases of all kinds. If you have questions for us or ideas for future shows, please feel free to contact us at info at or you can find us on the web at netech.org slash podcast. That's N-E-T-E-C dot org slash podcast, where you can subscribe to future episodes and find more information on today's topic. We'll see you next time on Transmission Interrupted. You've been listening to Transmission Interrupted, the podcast series from Netech, the National Emerging Special Pathogens Training and Education Center. Learn more at netech.org.